0: International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. What happens to us when we die? Do we have a consciousness or soul that lives on, and if so, where does it go and what does it see? Is there judgment of our lives after death? And if so, who does the judging? What are ghosts? And do they interfere with our lives on earth? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? And are these places eternal or stopovers in an ongoing journey? Some religions teach as a process called reincarnation. And what is the nature and meaning of terms like time, forgiveness, and love? Welcome to IONS NDE Radio. My name is Lee Whitting, and I'll be your host on this journey of exploration each week, Monday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. My thanks to IONS and my fellow IONS board members, especially Gabriel Serini, who helped initiate NDE Radio, to the composer of this morning's theme music, Frederick Delarue, also an NDE experiencer, to my friend Morrow Jones, who traveled to D.C. to video my first two interviews, and thanks as well to my patient engineer and producer, Dave Olson, and, of course, to my younger, smarter brother, Chris Switting, and his company, Talk Zone Radio, for making this possible. The questions I asked are the meat and potatoes we deal with at IONS, the International Association of, for Near-Death Studies, founded more than 30 years ago by such pioneers as Raymond Moody, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, Kenneth Ring, John Audette, Bruce Grayson, Michael Sabom, and others. These researchers were excited about reports of visions people were having of soul life that continues after our bodies die. Reports of -of out-of-body experiences that led to a tunnel and a light. And not just any light, but a light of love so intense that they said it must be the light of God. But how did these people come back to life to talk about it? Well, with new techniques of resuscitation, People whose hearts had stopped for a time were now being revived. Such cases were dubbed, for want of a better term, near-death experiences. One of the amazing things about streaming radio is the ability to store each program sequentially, like chapters in a book. So since this is our first NDE radio program, let's consider this the prologue or introduction to the radio book we are about to build together. First, I want to congratulate all those who made ION's Labor Day weekend, Washington, D.C., conference on near-death experience, such a terrific success. There have been many such conferences since ION's was founded more than 30 years ago, but I, I think this one was the best. You'll be hearing from many of the speakers and attendees in future NDE radio shows, but suffice it to say, I came out of that weekend thinking all I should do is play the Beatles All you need is love on this show over and over again. Of course, life on this planet appears to be more complicated than that, and listeners do bore easily. So we have many, many issues to cover over the foreseeable future. Some additional questions we'll be discussing. What is the difference between our brain and our soul? How does a near-death experience compare to other mystical experiences And what do such experiences tell us about the other side of the veil? And what is that veil itself? And can crossing over for a visit change our lives on earth? How do science and religion relate? For that matter, how do science and science and religion and religion relate to each other as well when it comes to defining consciousness? And finally, can we and will we see God? So many questions, so little time. In future shows, we'll be doing live interviews and have an opportunity for you to phone in with questions and NDE accounts of your own. There are many of them out there. I know Uh, a Gallup poll revealed uh, several years back that there were probably 15 million people in this country alone who've had NDE experiences. For this prologue show, however, I thought I'd take a little time to tell you about my NDE when I was a child. After World War II, my father built a cottage on a little island on a lake near the town of Branchville, New Jersey. We loved going there and got very used to feeling it was a safe place to be. One day, before I learned how to swim, I waded out too far and suddenly felt my feet slip out from under me. I went under, came up once, and screamed all the air out of my lungs. But then, with no breath to buoy me up, I started sinking to the bottom of the lake. Fortunately, my mother heard my scream and came running from the cottage. I know this because I was watching her, not from my body, which was underwater, but from a point high in a birch tree where my out-of-body soul had decided to land. My consciousness watched as my mother ran down the steps from the cottage, raced into the water, and dove down to find me. When she did, she dragged my lifeless body out of the water, threw me face down over a log, and pumped on my back, as she told me later, to try and force the water out of my lungs. By doing this, she more or less invented an upside-down version of CPR. For as she pressed on my back, the log under my chest was compressing my heart and got it going again. Now bear in mind, I felt no fear or even questioned the fact that I was watching all this from above. After all, I'd been taught in Sunday school that we have a soul, and so nothing seemed surprising to me. She got me to breathe. And then I was back in my body again. Now, this alone would uh, qualify more as an out-of-body experience or an OBE instead of an NDE, except for one thing. While I was there, I saw the tunnel and the light. For years after that, I dreamed uh, that a vision, uh, a dark, swirling tunnel marked by a light that I can only describe as representing all my hope was was there in my dream, and For years, I interpreted these dreams as reliving my drowning experience. I would wake up in a cold sweat, thinking that the tunnel was the dark water drawing me down. While the small circle, distant circle of light, was the sun shining on the surface of the lake. These dreams haunted me so much that years later, I went back to the lake, dove down, and turned to look up at the surface from the bottom where, where I'd been years before. And what I saw was completely different from my dream. The view, even from the bottom, showed me no tunnel, and the light of the sun was spread evenly over the full surface of the lake. So I put the whole thing out of my mind until, several years later, in reading about NDEs, I realized the tunnel and the light image being reported was exactly what my dreams were trying to remind me about of what I had actually seen. Now, did my NDE make me a better person? Well, certainly not in the short term. I was still a pain to my younger sisters, later an insecure teenager, and after that a not-so-great college student at Columbia. But I always had questions. For instance, my mother told me I'd been born under a sign. She meant it as a joke because the sign she was referring to, referring to said, Jesus saves. It was fastened to the ceiling over the delivery table in the Salvation Army Hospital where I was born. I also wondered when she told me that I was not really the oldest child, since she'd had a miscarriage before I was born. I wondered, and I still wonder, whether my soul was also the soul of my older brother, taking residence in my body after his body failed to thrive. Again, so many questions, so little time. But despite my failings, I guess there were some consequences to my NDE. First of all, my mother, who'd been raised Methodist, converted to Catholicism, partly, I think, in gratitude to God for my surviving the drowning. I had to attend Sunday school and get whacked on the wrist with a ruler by a nun who took no excuse if I hadn't memorized my catechism lessons for the week. For instance, why did God make me? God made me to know him, to love him, to serve him in this world, and to be happy with him forever in the next, or words to that effect. And I developed an enormous interest in astronomy, and would spend hours in the backyard at night staring up the stars. At Columbia, I studied Eastern religions, marveled at the wisdom of Buddhism. Still, it took decades before I finally got it together enough to go to seminary, work as a hospital chaplain, and finally earn a doctor of ministry degree in near-death studies. So in the long run, I'd have to say my childhood NDE did redirect my life. But there are many more profound mystical experiences than mine, and future shows will certainly cover some of these. As a benchmark, I plan to use one of the earliest reports, the story of a soldier named Ur, as told in Book 10 of Plato's Republic, some 400 years before Christ. So let me give you an outline of that story. Plato reports the NDE of a warrior named Ur was slain in battle, and ten days later, when the bodies were taken home to be burned, they found his body was not decayed. Lying on his funeral pyre two days later, he suddenly sat up and told what he had seen of the next world. Ur said his soul left his body and traveled with a great company a mysterious re- region where there were two openings side by side in the earth and two more openings above judges sat between these openings and after each judgment sent the righteous to the right and upward the unjust to the left and downward with their history written on signs they wore on their backs the judges told Ur er he would return to the world to be the messenger to mankind of what the next world was like he was told to observe carefully from the other two openings Earth saw souls emerging from the earth, full of squalor and dust, and from the heavenly gate souls clean and pure. These souls seemed to have come from a long journey, and all gladly gathered in a meadow and encamped there, as if at a festival, and acquaintances greeted one another, and the ones that came from those earth from the earth questioned the others about what it was like above, while those from heaven inquired how things were with those who suffered below. Ur said the punishment for the unjust was ten times the wrong they had done to others in their lifetimes, and a loud voice sounded if any souls tried to emerge before their sins were requited. This gathering of souls in the beautiful meadow lasted seven days, and on the eighth they began the journey to an intense pillar of light like a rainbow, but brighter and purer, that extended from the earth to heaven Indeed, it was the girdle of the heavens, holding everything together. Within each whorl of light was another, eight in all, with a different color and a different siren or angel, turning round and round and sounding a single note that blended with the sound of the others. Each soul then chose the lots and patterns of their next life, declaring, The blame is his who chooses, God is blameless." Lots were thrown, and fates decided. There was an interchange of good and evil for most souls, depending on how the lots were thrown, and after their future lives were chosen, the souls journeyed to the plain of oblivion through a stifling heat till they camped at the river of forgetfulness. They were all required to drink a measure, but the unwise drank too much, and as they drank, they forgot all things. And after they had fallen asleep, there was thunder and a quake, and the souls were shot upward in their next to their next births like shooting stars. Only Ur er was told not to drink the water of forgetfulness, and then he found himself back in his body. Now this is a far more complete, but in some ways radically different, description of most near-death experiences. So why would I want to include it in more contemporary stories of the experience? Well, for one thing, it was written about 400 B.C., within a century of the Hebrew prophet Jeremiah and the founding of Buddhism by Gautama Buddha. In other words, Plato's report of Ur's NDE was something like an Old Testament to the many thousands of stories that came to be reported starting in the 1970s, which we can loosely dub New Testaments. I'm simplifying, of course, but it's it's good to recognize that NDEs are not a new phenomenon, but we're talked about more than four centuries before the birth of Jesus. So, you'll be hearing about her again. Speaking of reference points, on my flight to Washington, D.C., and the IONS Conference, I was lucky to pick up the summer issue of Parabola, a splendid magazine dedicated to merging myth as they describe it where spiritual traditions meet. This issue which happened to be their 150th, which is pretty good for a quarterly, took up the theme Visions of Heaven, Escape from Hell, which they approached from such different directions it could be a template for the show. If you get a chance, pick up a copy. But for those who can't, um, I thought I'd like to mention some of the articles and share a few brief quotes. This is the summer 2013 parabola which, by the way, we have no connection with it. I, and it's, just, it's just a great magazine. The first article happened to be a near-death experience. It was related by Tracy Cochran, and it's titled The Night I Died. Uh, just giving her uh, a few sentences of the, exp- of the experience she had, it was then that I saw the light, just a glow at first, but growing brighter until it became dazzling, welling up in the darkness to fill my whole body and mind. As I grew, this light gained a force and direction, an authority unknown to me. I remember marveling at the building intensity and intention, wondering where it had come from, not just low down in my body, but from unseen depths. And then it became a column of brilliant white light that shot out of the top of my head, arcing high into the night sky. So that's the first article. The second one, by contrast is uh, by Lee Van Lyre, uh Emanations of Divinity, The Cosmology of Hieronymus Bosch, who, by the way, did an amazing picture of uh, the tunnel and the light, which I don't think is mentioned in this article. But anyway, uh, Lee writes, Bosch, in a single grand gesture that rivals the insights of the medieval dervish ph- philosophical schools, conceive, conceives of an imagined universe in which divine influence flows unimpeded from the spiritual level into the natural manifestations of both the earth and humanity. He masters the expression of grace, sensuality, sexuality, and materialism that arise from the interaction between the divine and the natural, and he presents us with the disastrous consequences of the steady deterioration of divine influences as they come into contact with the egotistic influences of mankind. He does so meticulously. Not a single stroke of the brush is wasted, and not a single pictorial element is placed by accident. He does so humorously. Both intelligence and wit are deployed repeatedly and to great advantage, leaving a work that mystifies, delights, and instructs. He does so mercilessly. The depredations of mankind are presented with a ruthless objectivity that leaves no stone unturned in its search for how lofty our origins are and how deeply we sink. So in this issue, which is dedicated to visions of heaven escape from hell, they're uh, talking about an artist who brought the uh, divinity of heaven into the depths of the earth and sees the the emergence of a, a possible hell from that because of our own inability to recognize the divine. Okay, next article it was by um, Mark Nepo, Hearing the Cries of the World, and he writes, um, I found that wherever I go through, that whatever I go through opens me to what others have gone through. This is the gut and sinew of compassion. Our own ounce of suffering is the thread we pull to feel the entire fabric. Having pinched a nerve in my back, I can feel the steps of the elderly woman who takes 20 minutes to shuffle from the bread line to get her milk. Having lost dear ones to death, I can feel the weight of grief that won't let the widower's head lift his gaze from the center of the earth where his sadness tells him his wife is gone. And so forth. Heaven and hell. Doug Thorpe uh, writes something understood. He tells about how he was a teacher and asked his students to describe heaven. And uh, he gets from one student, he says the only student he recalls, uh, the description from John in the Bible. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with them, is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And uh, Thorpe writes, I did not know what to say. I still don't. John has described it, has told us something true and eternal, but it's the poetry in it that makes it true. There's an article by Rene Thorpe, uh, titled Escape from Hell, quoting uh, Rainier Maria Rilke, Don't be afraid to suffer, return that heaviness to the earth's own weight. Heavy are the mountains, heavy the seas. And uh, Thorne writes, I read the poet's words with the devotion of scripture, as if being converted to a religion whose name I did not know. Then goes on, even the most desperate theology does not shed easily, and having just turned 30, the age of my mother's death, I still find myself often trying to unravel religion from reality. A co-worker unexpectedly asks if I believe in the apocalypse, and after so many years I can't think of what to say. Religion is a language I no longer know how to speak. All of my creeds run backwards, like a river trying to return to its source. And in the New Age understanding of the near death experience, you will find many people who say that. As a, in my work as a chaplain, I encounter many people who say, I don't have any religion, but, <clears throat> excuse me, I do have faith. This, uh, issue also includes a story from the, from India's Mahabharata, um, which is uh, something that I want to discuss in a future program. Not the article, but, um, the, uh, the keys to heaven. And then, I think very delightfully, they include a, uh, an essay from William James, What Makes Life Significant. James went to um, uh, a summer gathering at the assembly grounds at Chautauqua, which, for those of you who may not know, is a an idyllic setting where poetry and theater and music is performed in under ideal circumstances. Everyone is kind and Sober and sharing and loving because it's such a wonderful place to be. And uh, as, as uh, James writes, you have no diseases, no poverty, no drunkenness, no crime, no police. You have culture, you have kindness, you have cheapness, you have equality, you have the best fruits of what mankind has fought and bled and striven for under the name of civilization for centuries. You have in short a foretaste of what human society might be were it all in the light with no suffering and no dark corners. And then he says, I went to I went in curiosity for a day I stayed for a week, held spellbound by the charm and ease of everything, by the middle-class paradise without a sin, without a victim, without a blot, without a tear. And yet, what was my own astonishment on emerging into the dark and wicked world again to catch myself quite unexpectedly and involuntarily saying, oof, what a relief. Now for something primordial and savage, even though it were as bad as an Armenian massacre to set the balance straight again. This order is too tame, this culture too second-rate, this goodness too uninspiring. This human drama without a villain or a pang, this community so refined that ice cream soda water is the utmost offering it can make, to the brute animal in man. Altogether, an excellent (laughs) issue. I hope I've given them a sufficient plug for you to go out and uh, seek a copy of the summer 2013 parabola. Um, I'll I'll use this varying approach to NDEs that exhibited in this issue of the magazine as a guide to future programs. Now, let me give you uh, an NDE story from the files of IONS. In this account, a woman almost dies when she seems to be coming down with the flu. She speaks of blaspheming God as she was fighting for her life, but that did not prevent her from finding herself in the presence of God and love when she got into the light. It was 1969. She writes, I was 32 years old, married, and the mother of five children, the youngest being five and the oldest 14 all the children had had the flu several weeks prior, and while I was always caught, I always caught everything from them. This time, I thought I was going to be lucky. I seemed to be beyond the incubation period. I had worked very hard this day, cleaning the house, and when I went to pick up my husband from work, I suddenly noticed an unusually extreme tiredness. He dropped me off at home, and I went and went to get a haircut. I lay down on the sofa in the living room, thinking a little rest would take care of me just fine. Four hours later, I had the most incredible experience in my life. Shortly after laying down, I began not to feel good. I, it started with waves of nausea, and I figured I had not escaped the flu bug after all. The nausea was terrible, but was followed in a short time by hard, piercing, knife-like pl- pains in my stomach. Next came a migraine headache, which I never had before since in my lifetime. Then teeth chattering, spine wrenching body-shaking chills such as I had never experienced before or since. At some point, I got into really serious trouble. It felt like the blood was stopping, coursing through my veins. I could actually feel my veins. It started at the outer extremities, tips, fingers, and toes, and began to move up my arms and legs in towards the trunk of my body. My brain was very alert. About this time, my husband looked over at me and said, Oh, my God, I'm calling the paramedics. At this point, I moved through the dark void of the black tunnel, which I found very frightening because I didn't know where I was going. And then I saw a beautiful light at the end of the tunnel. I knew it was heaven. When I arrived in the light, which was of a beauty that words cannot describe, uh, I was enveloped in love. The love, too, was beyond what one could ever experience while on earth. I was not aware of any beings, per se, but knew I was in the presence of God. That is just what it was, being in the presence of a knowing sense, not a visual being. I had a very quick life review and curiously realized the children I fought so ferociously to be with, to raise, now, now seemed insignificant as my childhood toys. Everything took on a different perspective in that other realm. I was given the knowledge of the universe, which filled me with wonder and amazement. This knowledge is not kept when you return to the earthly realm. Suddenly, I was back on Earth, struggling to get air from the third oxygen tank they had tried on me. The first two did not work. I was then put on a stretcher and taken to the hospital. At the hospital, they kept asking me what happened. I was so confused, and I certainly could not tell them what had happened, for fear I would end up in the psychiatric ward if they had one. I was still in shock from the whole experience and could not place it in perspective. I also felt they, the staff, were trained professionals and they should be able to figure out what was wrong, as I certainly could not. 1969 was before research and publication of near-death experiences. Obviously, I could not tell anyone what had really happened or even discuss it for many years. When the first books came out, I still did not feel comfortable enough to even want to read them. It was in 1973 that I first told a Dear close friend, what had happened. My children and family did not even know. Looking back over the years, the experience has helped me tremendously. I usually feel a wonderful inner peace almost all the time, lack of fear of death. Our brain or our consciousness is our soul, which is what goes on forever and expands in the other realm. It is our eternal essence and is only housed very temporarily in our bodies. From the perspective of this other realm, our bodies become completely insignificant. Their significance is only of the earthly realm. While I enjoy life and feel life gets better with each passing year, I feel a longing to go home, and not infrequently am jealous of those who pass on. I have a compassion for loved ones who are left behind, but find it very hard to grieve for anyone who has died. And honestly, it's impossible for me to feel grief for one who has passed on. My faith is rock solid, she writes, and I find at times I have a certain knowing about things I cannot explain. I believe in miracles and angels or spirit guides and pray frequently every day and throughout the day. It is ingrained and in a complete part of my life. My prayers consist of talking and listening and giving thanks for all my blessings of which I believe I have many. Church when I can attend as a treat, but I do not see it as a necessity. Well, that's it for our opening show of NDE Radio. If you'd like to hear the show again, it will be archived at our website, nderadio.org, and uh, you'll be able to find many more stories like the ones I've been uh, reciting at IAN's website, I-A-N-D-S, the International Association for Near-Death Studies.org. I-N-D-S dot org. For more information on near-death experiences and for the work of IANS, check it out and be here next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for more NDE radio. Thank you all for listening.